I read from John 12, the first nine verses. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with ye, but me ye have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. It seems that Jesus liked to go out to eat a great deal, and uh, that's a good thing to know. He said John the Baptist was an ascetic and came neither eating nor drinking, and they didn't like him. And he said the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they called him a glutton and wine-bibber. It says here that this was after the raising of Lazarus, and they had this supper in Bethany, and there was a mixed crowd. Some came out of curiosity to see Lazarus, they didn't come to see Jesus, but they saw Jesus anyhow. They had here Martha, the practical soul, who baked the biscuits and set the table and served the food, and Mary, the mystic. So the maid and the mystic were both there, and there's a place for both in the economy of God. Mary had some high-priced perfume. She didn't get it at the five and ten. And she anointed the Lord with it, and the house was filled with the fragrance of it. She didn't dab a little of it on his brow. She loved him so much that she recklessly forgot the cost and poured it all out in magnificent prodigality. Someone had used a few drops as a token, not Mary. It was all or nothing. Now look who's talking, Judas. He said, this is a year's salary that's been spent on this ointment. Grumbled at it. And all the while was getting ready to sell the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. To what purpose is this waste? What's the sense in this extravagance? Now sometimes we do waste God's money and lavish suppers while millions go to bed without any food. But there's also a variety of skin flint and tightwad who never gives God a dime without feeling when we asunder part it gives us inward pain. 
Jesus knew the heart of Mary, and he gave to this deed true meaning and significance. He said it's a memorial. Now the fragrance of that perfume soon evaporated, but the aroma, the spiritual aroma of that ointment, has lasted for 2,000 years. Talk about medals and citations and promotion. This perfume made Mary a celebrity forever. I like to call it sanctified extravagance. God loves it. My heavenly Father's not stingy. Some of the saints are, but he's not. He giveth liberally and upbraideth not. He wastes millions of blossoms every spring and trillions of snowflakes every winter and splashes color all over the landscape in autumn. He could do it with less, but he doesn't dole it out as though we were afraid he'd overdo it. And he doesn't measure his love. He gave his only son, he spared not his son, but freely delivered him up for us all. And he giveth not the spirit by measure. His love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus he giveth and giveth, and giveth again. If you were miserly and penurious and parsimonious, you didn't get it from God. My God is a generous God, always has been. I heard of a certain church where they had a new preacher, and they asked one of the old members, how do you like your new preacher? Man, they said, he is a praying man. Said he's been asking God for things our other preacher didn't even know God had. <clears throat> it's a good thing to catch on to the fact that God's got plenty of resources. And don't be afraid you will bankrupt heaven. He plants his love in the heart of every true mother. Aren't you glad your mother didn't keep books when you were growing up on how much you cost? How many meals? How many beds made up? How she sat up with you when you were sick? How much sleep she lost when you cried at night? There's still some others like that, thank God. They've not all been so liberated that they've lost their love. And they don't keep records and measure what they do by a computer. Bev Shea, before his dear mother passed away, visited her, and uh, after he'd gone to bed, she came in in the old-fashioned way with some cookies and milk, and he uh, took care of that. And uh, when she started out, she turned and said, Is there anything else I can do for you? And he answered, and there was more in his answer than escapes our first attention. No, mother, you've done enough. All back across the years, you've done enough. You don't need to ask, is there anything more that I can do? That's love that's liberated, that's free from the heart. You husband here tonight, you older ones, getting up towards my age maybe. When you were young, you remember when you bought your sweetheart a gift you couldn't afford. May not have been sanctified extravagance, but sure was extravagance. And then when you went out to drive horse and buggy, maybe, or the old Model Ford, there was room for two more on the front seat, besides you two. 
Now you start out to take a walk. You could drive a moving van between you. <laughs> Shame on you. Shame on you. God give us uncalculating love. And if you don't have it, the lack of it may break up your home. If you start keeping books mentally, measuring all you do, I'll do my part, but he or she must do their part. I'm just doing so much and no more. That's the road to ruin. God wants Christians with sanctified extravagance who don't keep books, who travel that second mile that our Lord told us about, over and above the call of duty. Are you doing any of that? And the fact of the business is we're pretty proud of ourselves if we do our duty, but I find an awful ignorance about a certain passage in Luke 17, 7 to 10, and I think we need a whole week of preaching on it. Jesus said, But which of you, having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will not say unto him by and by, or will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet, and will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to do. My soul, I thought if you did your duty, you'd be a profitable servant. You have never done your duty in the sight of God till you've overdone it. That's the teaching of my Lord there. Now, I don't mean more church meetings. There are too many of them now, and some of them. All this dashing around from Dan to Beersheba over a lot of little projects haven't got anything to do with redemption anyhow. The early Christians loved not their lives to the death. They counted not their lives dear to themselves. Freely ye have received, freely give. God loves a hilarious giver. You may not have much to give. I want to talk a little later this week, God willing, about that boy with the loaves and fishes. It wasn't much, but there was a miracle wrapped up in it. God has a treasure chest, I think, of little things that we did that were precious in his sight. That cup of cold water, for instance. The widow's might. And then have you read about Abed-Melech back in Jeremiah? You remember when the prophet was down there in the pit. This saint of God got some old rags together and lowered them so that the prophet could put them under his armpits so that when they pulled him up it wouldn't hurt so much. I wrote a piece about that in one of my books, Ministry in Old Rags. Sometimes God can take even old rags and use it to his glory. The simplest thing, uh, when saw we thee? What a text for a sermon. Just stop right there. Lord, when did we see you hungry and fed you and thirsty and gave you the drink, stranger and took you in, naked and clothed you, sick and in prison and came to you? Well, he saw you. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree at his devotions. You don't have to work up a vision to see the Lord. Get out into this suffering world and live for him. You'll see him 
and he'll see you in as much as you did it unto one of the least of these, you did it unto me. When you love Jesus, nobody will have to put on a drive to get you to loosen up. The love of God turns scrooges into saints. The old-time religion makes me love everybody we used to sing. We need to recover that as much fussing as there is in the churches today. I heard of a church the other day had a new sign in front of Harmony Church Number 2. <laughs> Wonder what happened to Number 1. Jesus Christ deserves the best you have and all that you have. Jesus paid it all. Now, don't get so vociferous saying in that first line that you forget that the next word's all. Jesus paid it all, all to him. I owe. I'm indebted to God. I'm indebted to grace. And I'm indebted to the Gentiles, Paul said. He was heavily in debt. To him I owe my life and breath and all the joys I have. I think about my old daddy. He stood head and shoulders above the community. He had two brothers who were preachers, one a Baptist, one a Methodist, and he should have been. Uh, he, he recognized a divine indebtedness. And the wonderful thing about it, he found out that it's a strange indebtedness because it pays dividends. You can't outgive God anyhow. And Father found that out. And I leaned over him as he was leaving this world for heaven. And he could barely whisper the last bit of singing he ever tried to do. Jesus paid it all. All to him. Oh. That's a heavenly indebtedness. Blessed is the man who recognizes it. And so I say to you tonight, don't be stingy with my Lord. Break that alabaster box as Mary did. God loves broken things, the broken clouds that give rain, and the broken soil that produces the harvest, and the broken bread from the broken seed, and a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou art not despised. Still stands thine ancient sacrifice, a broken and a contrite heart. Give God the cake. Don't give him the crumbs. Malachi thundered about that. He said, if the governor came to see you, you wouldn't hunt up the uh, scrubbiest lamb you could find in the flock. You'd hunt up the best one because the governor was there. Why not give God the very best? When the prodigal came home, they killed the fatted calf. And that uh, poor elder brother out there on the back porch uh, aren't you glad that that boy met his daddy before he met that brother? He might never have got through to his daddy if he'd run into that guy first. I believe some people are kept out of heaven by the conduct of some church members. They say, well, if that's it, I don't need it. I'm that good, and they are. As good as a great many of them. I'm glad that he met the father and the father met him. The Macedonians first gave themselves unto the Lord. Self, service, substance. Don't start with the dollar first now. God doesn't want the substance if he can't get your service. Doesn't want your service if he can't get you. Start with yourself. Now this is not extremism, this divine uh, uh, excitement about the Lord and this uh, heavenly extravagance that I'm talking about tonight. 
It's the spontaneous, exuberant love of Jesus that goes beyond duty and holy enthusiasm. At Pentecost, they said they're drunk on new wine. That's what they called it. And in Acts 4, the church was already in trouble because they'd been pretty bold in their preaching. And they called a prayer meeting and they did not say, Lord, excuse us for being so bold this time. We'll tone it down a little bit and stay out of trouble. They prayed for more of the same thing got them in trouble the first time. Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may preach thy word. Give us some more of it, Lord. You have boldness three times in Acts 4. Seen by the world, sought by the church, and supplied by the Spirit. And the Spirit gave them more of the same thing. A Scotsman during the Welsh Revival, when folks said they're going crazy over there in Wales, uh, they're drunk over there. He said, if this is a drunken orgy, God forgive me if I ever wake up. And the church could well say that today of what it needs. I hear so many people who are so afraid they'll develop a little tension serving the Lord. Everybody's so worried about tension today. Well, you're not worth a nickel without tension. You can't play a tune on a limp fiddle string. You've got to get wound up for Jesus Christ. I'm not going to criticize some brother that's going to heaven so fast I'm afraid he run past it. What I'm worried about is these folks not going to make it at all over there. How do you recover this sanctified exuberance in the church today? Well, if we could recover that wonder that our brother spoke about so eloquently this morning, with the divine eloquence, that's one of the best messages I've heard in a long time. And there's something wrong with you if you didn't get agitated in your soul. We've heard about the resurrection so much here in America, we've got used to it. And Calvary and the resurrection have almost gotten over among fairy stories and Santa Claus and all the rest of it. And when that rolls around, everybody gets excited. And then after a few weeks, when all the folks that work in the department stores have recovered, uh, then the folks uh, settle back down the same old ways. They never got excited about it. I've been preaching an Easter sermon on where it says over in Acts that James, you know, was already slain, and then uh, they meant to, they put Peter uh, in line for next, but they said they meant to do it after Easter, and it's the three little words there, and, and homiletically they don't mean a thing in the world in this connection, but I'm intrigued by it, intending after Easter. And I ask my crowd, now, what do you intend to do after Easter? Is it going to make any difference? Of course, Easter there means Passover. It's the only place you find it in the King James. But uh, it's not very important in itself, but I get bothered about that. What do we intend to do after Easter? We believe it with all our souls, but I think of those meetings over in Korea where the missionaries told the folks, go home, now the meeting's over, you must get your rest. And they wouldn't leave. The missionaries said the meeting's over. Uh, they said, but we can't go home. You've told us that God so loved the world. And he sent his son, and if we trust him and serve him, we'll live forever. I said, how can you go to sleep after hearing that? Lord, help us, we go to sleep listening to it in America. <laughs> all over this country. God help us. Intending after Easter, and here our brother was saying the same thing about the resurrection in substance. And we need to get agitated uh, and make it contemporary as though Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, was coming back tonight. 
You give me a crowd of people that are that concerned about it, and they turn the world upside down again. That's what did it the first time. Well, how are you going to get this back? Well, I can tell you from Matthew 21, Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold those and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Now, he cleaned out the temple first, and the church needs a cleansing today, and our hearts need cleansing, our lives need cleansing. Then the revival started. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And a little further down, the little children were waving palm branches, crying, Hosanna! I tell you, that was a regular Methodist camp meeting. And when the chief priests and scribes, now here's the religious crowd, Lord have mercy, saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? These kids are making too much racket in the temple. And Jesus said, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them. I wonder if he leaves some churches today on that account. There was the revival, but the people who hindered it were not the bums and the bootleggers, but folks who read the Bible, prayed in public, all of them tithers, tried to live separated lives, sought to win others, and went to hell. And they were the worst enemies he had, and they spearheaded the movement that put him on the cross. Now Mary did her best. Have I done my best for Jesus? She hath done what she could. As I look back, and one reason I wanted you to sing that, and I love that old song, over my life, and there's been a pretty long string of it now, and so much of it, I can hardly remember when I wasn't a preacher since I started at 12. And I look back over all this, and I get under conviction. Good Lord, when it's all over, are you going to say to me, well done, or will it be just half done? Half-heartedly, not wholeheartedly. William Law always got up early and asked him why. He said, who am I? Shall I fold it up in the bed late of the morning when the farmers have already gone about their work and I'm so far behind with my sanctification? That'll get you out of bed if you get concerned about that. Does it bother us much today? Love so amazing, so divine, demands. It doesn't just suggest demands my soul, my life, my all. I think we've hidden the cross today and put cushions in the place of it in our churches. We make everything as comfortable and as entertaining as possible. And the note of reproach, let us go unto him without the camp, bearing his popularity, no, his reproach. A songwriter was telling me some time ago of a program the kids were going to put on a certain church, and these youngsters were to come marching down the aisle, singing onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. And the kids had a notion, that, uh, along toward the last, that they'd like each one of them to carry a little cross with them as they came down. But the songwriter said, no, let's not have that. That'll be too much of a bother. Some of them got little crosses anyhow, but they rooted it out and took them and hid them behind the door in the Sunday school room. Well, those kids didn't like that a bit. And you know when they go on an insurrection, you better look out. 
And they came down the aisle, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus hid behind the door. <laughs> I don't blame the kids. They had a right to righteous indignation about that thing. Oh, did I do my best for Jesus? Am I ashamed of the cross? He that saveth his life shall lose it. He that giveth sparingly will reap sparingly. He that giveth bountifully shall reap bountifully. By my bed I keep that verse that my God is able to make all grace abound so that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. And that means that if I stay in the will of God, there'll always be enough of all I need to do all God wants me to do as long as he wants me to do it. Now that ought to take care of your troubles. You came tonight with 14 different perplexing problems. If you ever see the Lord, you say, I want him, I want him to answer. He won't do any such thing because he said to the disciples, I'm coming back, and when I do, ye shall ask me nothing. So just throw away your little questions. I've got to stack this high myself. I'd like to have explained. Lord, why, 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 why? I ought to throw them away. You will not ask me anything. Did I do my best for it? I get concerned about this in my own life. I've never been almost 79 before. First time. And I don't know how much to undertake. Of course, you've had Bertha Smith here lately, and that puts all of us to shame. 92 and just as liable to take off for uh, South America or Taiwan or anywhere else tomorrow. She is a woman. I, uh, we came to the South Carolina Baptist Evangelistic Conference. We were on the program. And I wasn't feeling very good that morning, you know, puny. And I said, oh, never said a thing about it to Bertha. I said, Miss Bertha, I don't feel well this morning. Oh, she said, commit it to the Lord, commit it to the Lord. I said, I never will ask that woman again what to do. I'm tired of it. said, say anything about it. Oh, no, but I, I wonder sometimes how much does God want you to do without overdoing it? You have to be, use a little common sense. Well, we ask him, Lord, I need wisdom. Ask and you shall receive. But then there's another verse. Give, and it'll be given to you. Spend yourself freely. It'll be given to you. Uh, good measure, pressed down, running over, nothing stingy about that. Now, that doesn't mean you're not to use good sense. I think we do more by doing less sometimes. God's not interested in quantity production. That's an American standard. It's not a Bible standard. In the early years when I was traveling around preaching, I got up and went to everything. Early morning radio, high school, rotary club. By night I was all tuckered out for the main event. Well, I had to learn something. Now I don't go out to supper anywhere, anytime, in any home. After the services I never visit, I go to bed. Uh, I stay only in motels, never in homes. I love homes, but I find that I belong to a place where I can close the door. And uh, it's hard sometimes, and has been for the last seven years, to stare at the wall and nobody to talk to. But I, I go through all that and... Uh, Yet I tried to take care of myself. Mr. Moody lived rather well, and somebody criticized him, said, Mr. Moody, uh, we believe in saving the Lord's, uh, Lord's uh, 
money here. He said, I believe in saving the Lord's servant. That's why he went first class. But uh, don't be stingy. God didn't save you to put you on a coin collection for display. You give and I'll give. Mr. Carter, our president, tells how that after he finished naval training, he went to Admiral Rickover hoping for a promotion. And that uh, rugged old admiral, who was quite a character, you know, asked him about his grades, and they weren't at the top, and they weren't at the bottom. Fair, you might say. And Jimmy said, I told him. And he said, did you do your best? Jimmy said, no, admiral, I'm afraid I didn't always do my best. And then he looked at me and asked just one question. Why not? Jimmy Carter said, I couldn't think of an answer and backed out of the room. And I thought if the master of all good workmen, if you appear before him and I do, suppose he'd ask us, did you do your best? I think you'd have to say, no, Lord, I didn't. What if he'd ask us, why not? That gets next to me. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he'll give thee the delight of your heart, the desires of your heart. When I was a youngster, we used to sing, I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. They fly so high, nearly reach the sky. Then like my dreams, they fade and die. Fortune's always hiding. I've looked everywhere. I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. And that's what most people are doing today. Blowing bubbles and they burst. And some of them take the way out of suicide. They get drunk. They take drugs. Oh, just bubble blowers. I said, Lord, I don't want to be a bubble blower in this world. I want to be a blessing to people. Why don't you make that your business? You don't have to be a preacher to engage in that. The best paychecks that I ever get are when some dear soul writes in a letter, and I've got an accumulation of letters now, wouldn't take anything in this world for them. Scarcely a day passes that I don't hear from somebody. Or some soul will come up to me like some of you have done here already, talking about two years ago or some other time, or maybe many years ago. My, my, my acquaintance with some of you goes way, way back there. And, and, and you've been kind enough to say that a little book or a sermon or something was a blessing. Well, now, that's not, I don't have a prerogative on that. You can be a blessing. I know some old grandmothers to whose doors people have made tracks because they knew God. We're the salt of the earth, and God didn't put you in the salt cellar for exhibition. He put you in the salt shaker for distribution. He meant to scatter you out into the carcass of a dying humanity. And we are supposed to be rubbed into that carcass, and it's not pleasant. And a lot of us are too fastidious. We wouldn't touch a sinner with a 40-foot pole. Neither would the Pharisees. They were separated from sinners, but not from sin. And they wrapped their robes around them and proud of their phylacteries. They wouldn't touch a poor fellow in a wretched condition 
But Jesus gave plenty of evidence to the contrary that that's what's pleasing to God. One of the earliest great evangelists that I heard was uh, Wilbur Chapman and Charles M. Alexander, the gospel singer. And uh, one time they were having a sort of an old-fashioned mourner's bench service. And Charlie Alexander was looking down from the pulpit on the people who came. And there came some poor woman from off the streets, a sight to see. Her life told in every mark of her countenance and her clothing. She fell like a sack of sand at the front. And down the other aisle came a well-dressed young lady wearing a mink coat. She came over and knelt beside that poor thing and put an arm with that mink sleeve around it, around that poor soul. Charlie Alexander watched that and he said, Now whoever she is, that's somebody. And he went down and met her. And a little later fell in love with her. And a little later married her. And I don't blame him. And I heard her give her testimony during that revival. Cadbury Candy. Helen Cadbury, it's good candy and that's good devotion too to the Lord. But that's the thing that's sanctified extravagance. Well, it's all right to go down and have a word maybe with her if somebody gets her up and you can talk to her. But me? Wrap this sleeve around her? Well, I, I, I'd like to live in a sylvan retreat. I grew up in the woods. Some people think I'd never come out. <laughs> I said, let me walk in the field. God said, no, walk in the town. I said, there are no flowers there. He said, no flowers but a crown. I said, but the sky's dark, and there's nothing but noise and din. And he wept as he sent me back. There's more, he said, there's sin. Because there is, you're needed out there where the action is and where the trouble is. I never will forget feeling so deeply when I was pastor in Charleston from 34 to 39. My need of a touch that I didn't seem to have. And I had heard a lot about it and knew there was a lot of extremism about it. But in my desperation, I said, Lord, whatever I need that is true to the Word of God, I won't. Now, you can't miss on that. And dear old Granny Russell, there's one of your old grandmothers, sent me a book, The Deeper Experiences of Famous Christians. It's back in print now, I'm so glad. And I read it that night, couldn't go to sleep until I had finished it, and then I couldn't go to sleep because I had finished it. And God convicted me of a need of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, John 7, 37, 39. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Thirsting is not just wanting a drink of water casually. It's desperation till all you can think about a drink of water. If any man come to me and drink, that's where faith comes in. 
thirsting, coming, drinking, believing, overflowing. That's the prescription. And sometimes people say, I don't know what's the matter with me. God doesn't use me. Why doesn't Jesus use me? Listen, friend, God's using everybody in here tonight as much as he can as of tonight. But not all he could. Now, if you can get from can to could, you're going somewhere. Sometimes there's a big distance between those two. You ask God to use you, yes, but he's waiting till you're usable. You make yourself usable, he'll wear you out. You say, Lord, you're about to kill me. I didn't know you were going to use me this much. Take him up on it. Sanctified extravagance. God alone. I've just been up to Moody in the last few weeks to the preacher's conference. 1,500 preachers there that challenge your soul. But I never go to Moody Institute and I went there in 21 the first time. A uh, long time ago. I never go to that place, but I am overwhelmed with the life and ministry of that remarkable man. He wasn't the kind of man you'd have thought would rise to the occasion as God's foremost preacher for that day and generation. He didn't look like a preacher. He didn't have a pulpit appearance. He didn't have the education. My soul, no. He's the only man they ever heard who could pronounce Jerusalem in two syllables. And yet the great preachers of Scotland and England sat at his feet, and America. Gamaliel Bradford wrote a book trying to explain D.L. Moody, but uh, Bradford didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. And how are you going to explain D.L. Moody without the Holy Spirit? I know one thing, that in his early years he was so ambitious for God, and he was possessed of such prodigious physical stamina, that he could wear out a half a dozen other men. And they called him Crazy Moody because it looked like he wanted to convert the whole world in six months. And he was going about it in dead earnest as far as he's concerned. But two dear old ladies were praying for him. They knew that if he kept up that pace, he'd kill himself. And he got under conviction. And he got under such conviction that walking down the street, he passed by the home of a friend and knocked at the door and said, I want to use one of your rooms to be silent, to be quiet a little bit. He went in there and God met him. I'm telling you, as Mr. Pollock tells it in his biography, that there he had a fresh experience of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And Moody said this, There was a time in my life when I was like a man carrying buckets of water. But now, I have found a river that carries me. Now friends, I'm afraid that the devil's putting one over on us today because there is sometimes extremism on this matter. He's got some folks so scared of the work of the Holy Spirit they don't know anything about any kind of a work of the Holy Spirit. So scared they'll get out on a limb, they don't even get up the tree. 
That's a trick of Satan. Dr. Torrey called it the baptism, and we don't agree with that term today, but who's going to quibble over all that? He was filled with the Spirit. And I think that that's the term. But let's not be so afraid we'll overdo the thing we never do it. Know what it is. Maybe that some of you have been just running yourself ragged with two buckets of water. You're in God's bucket brigade trying to put out little fires here and there. I just want to leave you in closing with this word of advice. Throw away your bucket and get on the river. And if you do that, you will find that God has made you a promise in His Word that He will bear you up and carry you it says. This is not done just by walking down an aisle and shaking hands with the preacher. Demands a little more concern than that and probably a little more time. But there's somebody here tonight that's been almost working yourself frantic with buckets of water. And you mean well and God loves you and you love him. But there's a better way. And I'm glad that if you have a holy thirst in your heart, he will satisfy it. Come to him. Drink, believe, receive, and overflow to his honor. And you will be a blessing wherever you go. Now, Father, I don't know who's who here tonight. You do. And there may be men and women and some younger people out there tonight who are a good deal maybe like Moody. They're energetic. They want to do right. They're working hard in the church, wherever they are. And thou dost love them. And they have a sort of extravagance. It's better than a lot of other folks in the church who don't have anything. But, oh God, if we're just carrying buckets of water, Get us to the river of the presence and power of the Spirit of God and help us to be able to say down deep in our soul, I've found a river that carries me. Let us all stand, please. Now may a deep sense of thy presence attend us and may somebody go to a quiet place tonight in holy desperation, worn out working for Jesus, maybe. But oh, bring us through to that blessed source of strength that never fails. We may fail. We may get tired. We will need resting. We'll need all those things. We're human. And yet, above it all, there'll always be enough of all that we need to do all you want us to do as long as you want us to do it if we're in your will, and we thank thee for it. In Jesus' name, amen.